This here is Harold Garrison. Uh, my son had trouble with the law, and I have to talk to someone today. Scott looked at his calendar. What kind of trouble? He's locked up at the jail for teenagers. What are the charges? Scott asked. Uh, and summons from the juvenile court said he's unruly and delinquent. Well, that could mean a lot of things. Did anyone at the detention center tell you anything more specific? Yeah, a guy wrote it down on a piece of paper. Phone was quiet for a few seconds. It says, assault with a deadly weapon with intent to inflict serious injury, assaulting by pointing a gun, and criminal damaged property. Those are serious charges. Lester says it's a big mistake. He ain't never been in any kind of trouble before. Lester, your son? Yeah. How old is he? Sixteen. It'd be seventeen less than a month. Scott's calendar was clear at three o'clock. Can you come in at three this afternoon? Yeah, but I need to know you're a fighter. I want someone who can win. I've had some success, Scott responded. Uh, how much is this going to cost me? Mr. Garrison asked. Scott thought quickly. Did Mr. Humphrey mention a fee? He said it might be $2,500 if it has to go to a hearing. That sounds right. Scott Wesley Ellis, the newest associate of Humphrey, Balcom, and Jackson, checked the time on the small digital clock that divided his working day into six-minute intervals, billable by the law firm at rates of $115 to $160 per hour. Scott's salary was smaller than his counterparts an hour down the road in the office towers of Charlotte, but at the smaller firm he had the opportunity to sit at the feet of Mr. Humphrey, a true Southern orator, whose courtroom demeanor was so compelling that other attorneys would listen and take notes in the gallery when he gave a closing argument. Scott wanted to be a trial lawyer, and if there was a courtroom potential in his future, he believed Leland Humphrey could call it forth. Deciding to give an immediate report to his boss about the call from Harold Garrison, Scott left his office and descended the broad wooden staircase to the first floor. Scott knocked lightly. "'Come in,' the older man's voice boomed out. Leland Humphrey was sixty-nine years old with a full head of white hair, bushy eyebrows, and clear green eyes. Scott sat in a comfortable wing chair. I talked with Mr. Garrison about his son's juvenile court case. He's coming this afternoon. I told him to bring $2,500 as the fee for handling the case through a hearing in juvenile court. Good. It's a chance for some low-key trial experience. I thought you might enjoy it. If you have any questions, you let me know. Okay. Thanks. Shortly before 3 p.m., the receptionist buzzed Scott and announced the arrival of Harold Garrison. When he opened the door and saw Harold Garrison, Scott knew it had been pointless to adjust his tie. "'Mr. Garrison,' he said. "'I'm Scott Ellis.' Harold Garrison was a gruff-looking man, with an unshaven face, dark curly hair, and a prominent stomach that was only partially covered by a shirt missing several buttons. "'Come into the conference room,' Scott said. Harold Garrison sat down in a chair covered with ivory-colored upholstery. Scott sat across the table from Mr. Garrison. "'Before I ask you about the case, I need some background information.' "'About what?' "'Your family.' "'In juvenile court, a defendant's home life is often as important to the juvenile court judge "'as the issue of guilt or innocence. "'The saga of the Garrison family could have been the lyrics to an old-time country music song.' Harold had divorced Lester's mother after she ran off to Phoenix City, Alabama with her boyfriend. Lester was seven years old at the time, and they moved in with Harold's mother. Since then, Harold had stayed on the road about 26 days a month and drove all over the southeast and midwest for a regional trucking company, but avoided Phoenix City. And Lester stays with your mother? 
Yeah, she got bad sugar and lost her sight a couple years ago. I depend on Lester to look after her when I'm on the road. What year is Lester in school? The question stumped Harold for a few seconds. I think he has one more year to go. I only made it to the eighth grade, but Lester's pretty smart. Scott turned over a fresh sheet of paper. What can you tell me about the arrest? They claim Lester fired some shots at a bunch of blacks getting baptized in Montgomery Creek. Was anyone hurt? No, but they had to find someone to blame. And the police will always accuse a white person if there's a complaint by a black church. Scott ignored the racial slur and focused on the facts. Was Lester in the area? Yeah, but he hangs out along the creek all the time. Some jerks in a patrol car saw him walking along the road, picked him up. Scott flipped back to the first sheet of his pad. Do you know why he was charged with criminal damage to property? I think some cars got hit with bullets, but none of this has anything to do with my son. He's the scapegoat. Okay, uh, let me tell you about the juvenile court process. It's not like a criminal proceeding in superior court. There isn't a jury. It's more informal. Everything is tried in front of a judge who makes a decision and recommends disposition. Huh? Punishment. Harold raised his voice. Punishment? You make it sound like he's already guilty. I, I told you I want a fighter. Now, don't take me wrong, Scott said quickly. I'm just explaining the process. Even though it's in juvenile court, the state still has to prove its case. I will investigate everything, and when the time comes, attack from every angle the law allows. But first, I need to meet with Lester. Tomorrow's Friday. If you hire me, I can go see him in the morning. Harold calmed down. Well, that's more like it. "'So, do you want me to take the case?' Scott asked. "'Yeah. I have the money.' Harold reached in his pocket and pulled out a roll of hundred-dollar bills. Several days a week, Scott lifted weights at Dixon's Body Shop, a local gym owned by Perry Dixon, his best friend and former high school classmate. Scott had little fat on his five-foot, ten-inch frame, and he enjoyed lifting weights. But he went to Dixon's as much to hang out with Perry as to pump iron.' The two men walked to the corner of the room and sat down in front of a large floor fan. Scott rubbed his face with a towel. The young lawyer had clean, chiseled features and a square jaw. With sweat running off his face and his muscles expanded from the workout, he could have been a poster boy for the American jock. However, his dark brown eyes revealed a deeper level of both intelligence and feeling. "'What's new in the legal business?' Perry asked. Scott took a long drink from the cup before answering. "'Not much.' I'm going to be helping with the mock trial program at the high school. Mock what? Mock trial. It's a pretend case. The students act as lawyers and witnesses and compete against other schools based on facts given to them. I did it in law school. So this is for kids who want to be lawyers? Not necessarily. Most of the students will have witness roles, but they all get a taste of the legal system. There's a teacher who recruits the kids, and then I come in and throw lawyer dust on them and hope some of it sticks. Is the teacher anyone who taught us in school? Letter didn't say. I'm going to have lunch tomorrow with the principal and find out. The following morning, Scott stopped by the law office for a few minutes, then drove to the Blanchard County Youth Detention Center for his first meeting with Lester Garrison. The youth was wearing a pair of tight blue jeans and a white T-shirt with the sleeves cut off. He had two prominent tattoos, a swastika on one arm and a pair of lightning bolts on the other. Scott could see that the boy's right eye was puffy and that his left temple area showed evidence of a recent cut that had been closed with a couple of sterile adhesive strips. The deputy guided Lester with a firm grip on the young man's right arm just below the lightning bolts. "'Here we are,' Deputy Hicks said. 
Only a visit from a lawyer could get you out of lockdown this afternoon. Scott extended his hand. I'm Scott Ellis. Lester didn't reach out to shake hands, and instead he mumbled, My hand's sore. He cracked his knuckles, Deputy explained. He took a hard swing at another boy missed and hit the wall. Deputy Hicks released his grip on Lester's arm. Be in the office on the other side of the assembly room if you need me, Deputy said. The door clanged shut. Scott sat down and motioned for Lester to take a seat. Your father hired me to represent you. Has he left town yet? I think so. But he gave me your grandmother's name and number. He said you live with her. Yeah? Best way for me to understand what's happening is to ask you some questions. Before Scott could begin, Lester started talking. When am I getting out? I shouldn't be in here. It's all a frame-up. We'll get to that in a minute. Lester continued, and they don't allow the races to stay separate. What? That's why I got in a fight. They wouldn't let me sit at a table with only whites. Wait a minute, Scott interrupted. Back up. Let's get a few things straight. I don't need a lecture. I need to get out of here. I'm not going to lecture you, Scott said. As your lawyer, I need to tell you a few things. First, don't talk to anyone. I mean anyone, about why you are in here. Don't talk to any of the other boys, guards, teachers, caseworkers from juvenile court, or anyone else. Second, everything you tell me is between you and me. Nobody else will know about it. I'm representing you, not your father, and I don't have to tell him or anyone else what we discuss. Is that clear? Yeah, I'm not stupid. I didn't say you were stupid. I'm explaining how the attorney-client relationship works. Have you ever had a lawyer before? No. Then you need to listen. Third, my job is to represent you. I'm not working for the juvenile court authorities. I'm not trying to get the judge to like me. I'm here to give you legal representation.